right, ready, set, go. Let's get into it immediately, as in at once. And that is a favorite phrase that Mark uses all throughout the gospel. Immediately. Look for that word. Immediately. You'll see it all over the place. Or the words at once. And we're sure to see that as we go along the way throughout the book of Mark. Now, for introduction's sake, or if you were here last week, then reintroduction's sake, let me uh, ask a few basic questions, such as who, when, where, and why. Why Mark's gospel? And perhaps we should back up just a little bit and define that word, gospel. Gospel literally means good news, as in the good news about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John each report, describe, give an account about the life of Jesus. Each author is writing to a specific audience for a specific intention. They're all telling the same story, but they each have a different point of view about the world's greatest story. Okay, first question, who was Mark? Also, he's known as John Mark. He is self-described as a young man who got so scared when Jesus was arrested that he jumped out of his underwear and he ran away naked. Later on, we spot Mark for a time. He's with uh, Paul, traveling with him on his first missionary journey until Mark gets homesick, and he just quits the whole thing. Not a great testimony so far, this guy Mark, that of a deserter. Mark happened to be the good buddy of Peter, right? Uh, Mark wrote down Peter's eyewitness account. Um, in fact, the early church fathers referred to the book of Mark as the memoirs of St. Peter. Ah, you've heard of Peter, right? Yeah, he's the disciple who denied Jesus up and down three times. And so it looks like we have a deserter and a denier who pen this gospel, proving once again that God can use anybody, and indeed he does, because our Lord never gave up on these two, and he empowers both Mark and Peter in some really wonderful and really courageous ways. So that's the who, or more specifically, the whom. Okay, what about the when and the where? Now, it's, it's debatable, but Mark is believed to be the earliest of the Gospels, written to Christians living in Rome somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. And this is kind of an important point because history also tells us about the famous fire in Rome, which was probably set by Nero himself. That took place in the year 64. But do you know who Nero blamed for all that fire? That's right, he blamed the Christians. Which brings us to part of the why. Because these Gentile Christians that Mark is writing to are being persecuted. They're, they're being tortured for their faith. Whole families are thrown into prison, thrown to the lions, even worse. They're being martyred left and right. It's a terrible time. Peter is put to death in Rome. Tradition says by upside-down crucifixion. Terrible time. The believers are suffering, and Mark is writing to them to prepare them for it and to encourage them through it. He tells them to hold on, keep following Jesus, no matter what, keep the faith, 
And that's why Mark is writing with such urgency. It's the shortest of the gospels because the time is short. It's a gospel of action because it's a time for action. And Mark wants them to see, and he wants us to see, that the coming of Jesus calls for sacrifice, calls for commitment, uh, it calls for decisive action. So Jesus is seen as a man on the move. He goes from event to event to event, like dominoes all lined up and being knocked down, one after another, after another, after another, almost without a break. Mark emphasizes the miracles more than the parables. There's less about uh, Jesus teaching and more about Jesus doing. Last Sunday, Jim uh, walked us through chapter one, and we didn't see a, a long genealogy or anything about the birth of Christ, nothing about the childhood of Jesus, no, no lengthy introductions, no Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew and Luke's job. John's version, by the way, is altogether different. Uh, his theology is so uh, developed and uh, poetic. But, but that's not Mark, you know. Mark, uh, his gospel is very down-to-earth, and it's for down-to-earth kinds of people. It's for the guy who says, look, Mark, I don't know much about the Bible. And I could really care less about all those Jewish customs and all those Jewish traditions. That, that's not me. All I want is a plain and uncomplicated story about this man, Jesus, as long as it's not too long. And if you can give it to me straight, I'm all ears. Don't preach. Uh, don't use a lot of fancy symbolism. Just give me the facts and let me decide for myself. Paul O'Neill, who used to write for Life magazine, said this about writing, which is now known as O'Neill's Law. He said, always grab the reader by the throat in the first paragraph, and then sink your thumbs into his windpipe in the second, and then hold them against the wall until the tagline. Mark writes like that. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wastes zero, zero, zero time establishing the identity of his subject. He gets it out on the table immediately, at once. Those names, those are all titles, and they carry a lot of weight. Jesus, the one who saves. Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. Huge claim that Mark is making in just a few short words. Mark sets it up immediately, letting everyone know that Jesus is not just the king. Oh, no, he is the king. Jesus is not just a good guy. He's not just a master teacher. He's not just some enlightened leader. Oh, no, but he is the one, the divine one. He is the Messiah. Jesus is it. He is the one that we've all been waiting for. Now, today, we kind of look at those terms. We go, okay, got it, Jesus Christ, Son of God, yeah, yeah, Messiah. We, we, we kind of just roll through that, take that for granted. But let me just tell you, back then, if you read that, you, that was, you were getting grabbed by the throat there. 
And so having announced that Jesus is the one in verse one, Mark keeps on rolling all throughout chapter one. We see Jesus getting baptized. We hear the voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes right from there and he's tempted into the wilderness. And then he calls his first disciples. Then he drives, uh, he drives out an evil spirit. And then he heals all kinds of people. And this morning we get to chapter 2, and the healing continues. Ah, but this healing is going to be different. Today's healing is going deeper. All right. You got your Bibles, chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Immediately, there's that word, Jesus knew in his spirit that they're, uh, this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking such things? Boy, that would have freaked me out, by the way. Oh, anyway. <laughs> You're just talking to your buddies, crabbing about this guy, and all of a sudden, why are you thinking that? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this, and that is a fact. Well, you look at this story here. Okay, there's lots going on. Lots of different reactions to what Jesus was saying and, and what he did. But everyone is amazed. Uh, but there's also a whole lot of shock. There's confusion. And then there's still others who are just flat out furious with Jesus. Yeah, it seems that Jesus is already is bringing out the best and the worst of everyone. So let's start with the best. I'm, I'm talking about those, those friends of the paralyzed man. Because that's some bold, crazy love there. Jesus has come to town and he is preaching to a packed house. There's standing room only. Scalpers are outside selling tickets, you know. When four men came carrying their buddy on a mat. And we don't know anything about this guy. You know, we don't know if he was born this way or if he fell off a ladder and broke his neck. We, we don't know. 
Mark doesn't tell us if he was single, if he's married, did he have kids? I don't know. All we know is they had four really, really good friends who loved him enough to carry him across town to go see Jesus. Mark tells us that they couldn't bring him through the door because of the crowd, and so they went to work by digging a hole through the roof when they, they were, lowered their friend on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Wow, that's some faith there. But do you see what those four friends had done? They put themselves on the mat. They must have wondered, what if that were me? What if I was paralyzed? What, what if I couldn't walk and I, I had to beg people for money? But what would I want my friends to do for me? And so love springs into action. Love gets to work. Love wins. It's true. You poker players, you know this, right? Four of a kind beats a full house any day. Yeah, you got to think about it. And Jesus looks at their faith. What? Jesus looks at their faith, the faith of the friends. And the text says, when Jesus saw their faith, huh, faith does those things, crazy things. Faith does the unexpected. And Jesus looks at their faith and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I like the way the old King James Version puts it. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. In other words, cheer up. I forgive you. And that statement, that baffles everybody. And maybe it baffles you too. Forgiveness of sins. Who said anything about that? I bet if Mark quoted the man on the mat, he might have said something like, um, okay, uh, thanks, Jesus, but that's not what I came for. Not to be Captain Obvious here, but I'm paralyzed. I can't walk. I've got bigger problems here. I can't move. But Jesus knows something that he nor his friends nor the crowd or the religious leaders know that the man on the mat has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. And by the way, so do you. Me three. Uh, the big problem for the man on the mat and for all of us is sin. And I, I'm guessing that uh, any Christian who's been around a while, you know, we agree with that in theory. But in reality, really? Is your sin the big problem that's keeping you up at night? How much of your sin do you actually dwell on? I'm guessing not much. Because we've got bigger problems than that, right? 
you, you've got your problems, and I've got mine. We all got some problem, some big-time situation that, that if that could be fixed, if that could be resolved or restored, we'd say, I'm set. I'm set. I'll never complain again. I'll be content. I'll never be unhappy again. I swear. <laughs> Might be a health situation for you or someone you love. Maybe it's a money situation. Like, it ain't adding up. And where is it coming from? Job situation? Relationship situation? But if, but if, that, if that could get fixed, if, if that could get solved, right? If that could get healed, then I would be fine. But we won't. Because a new worry, problem, stress comes along and always does. You, you see, our real problem is sin. The same for the guy on the mat. And so Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter, the bigger problem, the deeper issue. The, everyone who is paralyzed wants to walk. And, and surely this man had put all of his hopes and dreams in that possibility. If I could only walk, I'd never need anything again, never, ever. And Jesus is saying, you're mistaken. And that might sound a little harsh. And Jesus says, you don't need a new body. You need a new heart. And I'm the only one who can give you that. So let me heal your heart. You see, it won't last if Jesus only heals the man's physical conditions. And so Jesus is going to go deeper, deeper healing Jesus does more than just heal the man's body. He heals the man's soul. But Jesus does more than take care of the temporary. He's going after the eternal. That's, that's what his love does. So when Jesus is saying, cheer up, your sins are forgiven, he's doing something incredibly loving, incredibly wonderful, and incredibly unexpected. So outlandish is the statement that it triggers the very first clash with the religious leaders. Who does that guy think he is? That's blasphemy. They're, they're thinking to themselves, who can forgive sin but God alone? And they're exactly right. I think of it like this, I, and I got this illustration out of Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King, but I've, I've changed the names as you will soon catch on. Let's say Pastor Chuck, uh, Greg Warzel, and uh, Ryan Fendler are talking after church. And uh, Pastor Chuck kind of walks over there and picks up Greg's guitar, and for no good reason at all, just smashes it to pieces. What a jerk. Completely destroyed. Anyway. Then Ryan goes up to Chuck and says, hey, Pastor Chuck, I forgive you for destroying Greg's guitar. It's all right. Everything's forgiven. 
what's Greg going to say? He's going to say something like, hold on there, Fendler. You can't forgive Chuck. Only I can forgive him because he didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. And that's why when Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins are forgiven against me. See, the only person who could possibly say that to another human being would be the creator. Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. And the religious leaders are catching on. They're there. They know it, that he's not just claiming to be a, a miracle worker. He is claiming to be Lord of the universe. That can't be. This guy is lying. And so they're furious. They took this very seriously. Mark chapter 2 is high drama. And it's here, very early on, where the shadow of the cross kind of falls across Jesus' path because he knows what they're thinking. He knows that if he lets on that he's more than a teacher and he's more than a healer, but that he claims to be the Messiah, that he is in fact God in a bod, they're going to kill him for it. Jesus knows that if he does more than just heal the man, but if he heals deeper, if he forgives his sin as well, he is taking an irreversible step to his own death. But that's what his love does. Jesus steps over the line. He knows what they're thinking. And so how does Jesus respond to their thoughts? Always watch this of Jesus when you read about Jesus and these religious leaders going head to head and they always ask him a question. How does Jesus, oh, not always, almost always respond with another question. He does this all the time. That's his, that was one of his favorite moves for some reason. He, he asks him, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up your mat, go home. And the man stood on his feet, rolled up his mat, gave a big thumbs up to his buddies, and he walked or he skipped home. I don't know. But which is easier? To forgive the man his sins or to heal his body? That is a good question. A confusing question, certainly for the religious leaders that day, because they knew that it's impossible to declare someone forgiven of their sins without some kind of sacrificial offering. That's how they did it back then. You didn't get forgiven unless you had a sacrificial offering. 
But this paralyzed guy didn't bring a sacrifice. So how could he be forgiven? Here's how. Because there is a sacrifice. And he is standing in the midst of them. And it's going to be much, 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 much more difficult to forgive the man and forgive us our sins, to heal us of our sins, to give us a new heart, will take the ultimate act of love. It will demand that God be shamed and abused and nailed to a cross. It will demand his blood sacrifice. But so strong is Jesus' love for this man and for you that he'll do it. He will put his love into action all the way to the mat, all the way to the cross. Only he can forgive like that, and he's done it. Be of good cheer, you. Your sins are forgiven. And you might not think that's your greatest problem, but it's your greatest problem, and that one is solved. Be of good cheer. Well, I don't know if you realize this, but you and I are all over the story. Now, that's always a good question, by the way, to ask yourself whenever you're reading in the Bible. Just kind of ask yourself, where am I in this particular text? Today, the short answer is just about everywhere. We're all over it. You see, you're the man on the mat. That's you. There's nothing in you that can get up and walk. There's nothing in you that could, you know, do anything. We're spiritualizing this story now, all right? Be of good cheer, your Savior has come. Be of good cheer. He's looked at you and said, son, daughter, I forgive you. All of it. Your sins are forgiven. Okay, so you're the man on the mat. Be of good cheer. Ah, but you're also in the house. You're part of the crowd. You and I are just kind of like the onlookers of the great love of Jesus Christ. And what is their response? Verse 12. The man got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God. Ah, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah, okay. Praise God. Praise God. Be of good cheer. Praise God. That's what we do. Praise God for all that he has done. Be amazed at his great love for you. You're the man on the mat that Jesus heals. And you're part of the crowd praising God. And, and you are a friend to a friend with a mat. You see, everyone in this world is hurting in some way, shape, or form. 
everyone has a mat. Everyone has a need. And they might not even know that the biggest problem they have is a paralyzed soul in need of a savior to forgive them. And so God sends out friends, you, to bring them to Jesus. And I'm getting a little ahead of where we are going in the book of Mark, but you will see that as we keep following along, um, that that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. That love calls forth love to carry each other's burdens, to love other sinners, to love those who are in need of healing, love those who are like you, especially love those who are not like you. Jesus went so far as to say, love your enemies. That's what Jesus said, love your enemies. See, we're not called to throw people off the roof, but to lower them through it. Bob Goff said that, not me. Okay, well, we made it through the first 12 verses of chapter 2 today. Looks like you have a little take-home assignment. <clears throat> Voluntary, of course. But uh, here's what, if you want to just kind of play along, want to grow, um, open your Bibles, you know, to the Gospel of Mark. Now, next week, we're going to jump ahead all the way to chapter 5, all right? And so if you want to prep for that, read the first five chapters of Mark. You could read a chapter a day. You could read all five in one day. You could uh, read all five every day, whatever. But as you do, I want you to see yourself in the text. And all the more... See your Savior and be amazed. Amen.